America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. But would it remain the greatest nation on God's green earth if uh, the state split up? If we go through a national divorce? I mean, uh, it was stupid enough when uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene had that to say as a suggestion. Now there is polling that shows that 47% of Republicans and over a third of Americans in general think it's a good idea. Let's split up the country. The, the problem with the divisions that you have from state to state from Republicans to Democrats, from candidate to candidate, they have become so bitter, so toxic, so poisonous to the country that people are again talking about breaking up the union. Now, why is that? Is that because the distinctions, the ideological distinctions, the essential distinctions are so profound or so deep? No, it's because those distinctions are so trivial. And the tribalism that so separates us is so profound and so deep. That's the theme of a very important and highly readable book that I couldn't recommend more enthusiastically. It's called The Myth of Left and Right, How the Political Spectrum Misleads and Harms America. It's by uh, two brothers, both of whom are distinguished academics, Hiram Lewis is an associate professor of history at Brigham Young University, Idaho. He received his Ph.D. from the University of Southern California and was previously a visiting scholar at Stanford. And his brother, Verlin Lewis, is Sterling Professor of Constitutional Studies in the Department of History and Political Science and the Center for Constitutional Studies at Utah Valley University. Uh, Hiram Lewis and Verlin Lewis, thanks very much for joining us on the show and congratulations on the book. Happy to be with you, and thanks for having us on. What, thanks so uh, much, Michael. What was your initial reaction with uh, all of the attention that's been given to Marjorie Taylor Greene's brilliant idea of a national divorce? Well, let Verlin take that one. That sounds like a political science question. <laughs> sure. Well, I'm not sure science is the right word. It's a political question. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's interesting. I'm teaching my students this semester um, an American presidency course, and we're actually just going over the Civil War right now. Uh, so... Of course, this nation has faced uh, calls for secession and division before, but I think you're getting at something, uh, Michael, in your um, comments that is really accurate, that Americans today think that they're more divided than they really are. And one of the reasons for this is a false left-right paradigm, the way we think about politics. We say that there's this unidimensional spectrum and everyone can be placed on the left or the right. And so... When we think about politics in this way, we think, well, whatever side of this spectrum I'm on, all of my issue positions are philosophically coherent, and I'm correct about everything, and everyone uh, who isn't on my side of the spectrum is wrong about everything. And we say this is a false way to think about politics. We think that uh, it's actually more useful and it's more accurate to think about politics in multidimensionality, that there's lots of different issues in politics. Uh, there isn't just one. And for us to think that there is only one issue in politics is misleading, and it's also harming our country. Our research finds that people who think about politics in terms of a left-right spectrum tend to be less intelligent 
and less charitable than they would otherwise be if they dispensed uh, with that mental framework. Okay, you give examples of uh, why uh, the simplification that people use, it's something you refer to in the book, and the book, again, is the myth of left and right. You refer to it as essentialism, is that the idea that they basically there's one big conflict, and the conflict is between those who believe, believe in uh, big government and uh, those who believe in smaller government and more individual liberty. And you give a number of examples of, uh, of contradictions where it just doesn't fit describing some of the issues that we actually encounter. Uh, Hiram Lewis, what's, what's an example of some of that inconsistency so that it's not one great big essential difference over the size of government? It's more than that. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I mean, the dictionary definition will say that conservatives are in favor of preservation and liberals are in favor of change. And that's the fundamental difference between left and right. But everybody has their own idea of what left and right is really about. And so you're citing one of the popular essences, and that's big versus small government. Now, this is obviously nonsense. Um, one, because we can find domestic examples of presidents who are considered right wing, who nonetheless radically expanded the size of government. George W. Bush and Donald Trump are two examples. Now, um, if that was indeed the essence of right versus left, then when George W. Bush ratcheted up the size of government way more than Bill Clinton had, people would have said, whoa, uh, Bush moved the country to the radical left. Instead, they said, no, he moved it to the radical right. So, um, so the, the essences simply don't work. And then, of course, you can look internationally, too. Um, Mussolini was considered a far-right dictator, and yet he believed everything in the state, nothing outside the state, everything for the state. Adolf Hitler was a national socialist, and uh, yes, he was indeed a socialist. He believed in nationalizing industry and radical redistribution of wealth and total government control of the economy. Um, that's the very definition of socialism, and yet he's considered on the far right. So if the spectrum was defined by how much government you believe there ought to be, then we would have put Hitler on the far left, but in fact we don't. So the bottom line is there's more issues in politics than simply size of government, and therefore we can't simply use one spectrum. All we're saying in our book, it, we're just, Michael, we're just saying the emperor has no clothes. This should be obvious to everyone who thinks about it for two seconds. There's simply more than one issue in politics. And if indeed there is, then why are we pretending there's one issue? Because a spectrum, by definition, can only model one issue. So we're just asking us to do what we do in every other realm of life. Nobody talks about a medical spectrum because we all know there's more than two kinds of diseases. We all know that there's more than two kinds of treatments, two kinds of doctors. So given that reality, we have to talk in multidimensional terms about medicine, and we should be talking in multidimensional terms about politics, too. Okay, you mentioned something there that I know that uh, some listeners are going to be concerned about. You talked about Trump expanding the size of government. How did Trump participate, as George Bush did, as, as most American presidents have done, in actually expanding the size of the federal government? Berlin, go ahead. Okay, sure. Yeah, so, you know, a lot of people will say, well, Donald Trump and the Republicans in Congress, they had to increase government spending and the size of government because of uh, the COVID pandemic, and this was an unprecedented thing. But if you even look before the COVID pandemic hit the United States, uh, Trump and Republicans in Congress were vastly, dramatically increasing government spending. I mean, for the first time in American history, government spending passed $4 trillion uh, with a Republican control of Congress and a Republican in the presidency. So Republicans have been doing this for a long time, increasing the size and scope of government. Uh, and yet we say that this is a move to the right for some reason. I mean, Donald Trump campaigned on 
uh, an unwillingness to reform entitlement spending, which makes up such a huge part of the federal budget. Uh, and yet we label him an extreme right winger, right? For the same reasons that Hiram just talked about with people calling Mussolini an extreme right winger. And it has nothing to do with the size of government. The only thing that these labels left and right tell us is social group affiliation. They're basically redundant terms. Left basically means Democrat. Right basically means Republican. But it provides no useful substantive information about um, issue content. And the reason that we think we should get rid of the left-right spectrum is because it implies something false, right? Partisan labels like Democrat and Republican, those are useful because they imply something true, which is that these are political groups and that people identify with them for social reasons. Okay, so and, and, and right. you, you actually have a great analogy in there, which is that people identify for their favorite sports teams. And uh, I was using the example of the Yankees and the Red Sox, which is a long-term competition. And does that really say something about who you are, if you are a Yankees fan or whether you're a Red Sox fan? That's the whole essence of tribalism, which we will get to in a moment, which is part of what is damaging our country, according to professors Hiram Lewis and Verlin Lewis, their book, The Myth of Left and Right. We will be right back. among many that are asked and answered in the new book uh, by the Lewis brothers. It is called The Myth of Left and Right. And uh, one of the questions that they ask is, is it really religion that divides uh, the two parties? And they go into some of the history of the whole party system in the United States. And once upon a time, the Democrats were a much more likely place to find people who were white evangelical Protestants. And uh, once upon a time, it was uh, much more common to find pro-life Democrats than uh, it was to find pro-life Republicans. And uh, how did that change? Well, it changed because this, unlike the system in Britain, for instance, with the Tories and the Whigs, uh, the divisions here in the United States have been more fluid. And the affiliations of people have had to do with tribalism, family background, uh, your social grouping, and more. Uh, uh, why? One of the things that I liked about the book very much is it brought up this sports analogy. Is people sometimes identify very deeply with a sports team? I mean, I I remember they had all these articles about people who wanted to be buried in their Boston Red Sox or Chicago Cubs uh, uh, <laughs> uniforms, uh, and I don't mean people who played. I mean fans. Uh, what what do we do to try to reduce the level of tribalism where it's not only that you love your side, but you hate the other side? That's damaging to the country, no? 
Uh, Absolutely. Oh, can, can I go ahead on that one? Please. Yeah. So, so I completely agree. And we like the sports team analogy because, you know, obviously people who follow sports teams admit they're being tribal. They know they're being tribal. There's no delusion there. The problem with politics is the myth of left and right makes people think they're being philosophical. So imagine if you would that um, sports teams, you know, sports fans, let's say you're a fan of the L.A. Lakers, and you saw all the players that played for the Lakers, and you made up a story saying, well, they're all philosophically connected. They all have a common underlying essential characteristic that binds them, such as speed or something, right? Um, and then, you know, that's basically what we have going on. So, you know, another metaphor we like to use is, um, you know, grocery baskets. Currently, Michael Medved goes to the grocery store and he walks in and he says, I like Swiss cheese. And then he grabs some kale. And if he's feeling naughty, he'll go get some ice cream or something. Um, but, but what if they instead stood out front of the grocery store with two baskets of groceries and said, Michael, you have to choose one or the other. Now, that's basically how it is in politics. And we're not necessarily against that. We think they're may be advantages to the two-party system. So Michael would have to say, darn, this one has the kale and the ice cream, but not the Swiss cheese. I guess I'll take cart A. Now, that would be fine. But what Michael wouldn't want to do, and what we are all doing in politics, is saying, no, actually, everything in this basket is better than everything in that basket um, because they're all philosophically connected. That would be self-delusion. So you asked, what can we do to reduce the, <laughs> to reduce the pathology to make our politics more sane? is to give up the delusion, to realize that our parties are baskets of, poli of policies. Th there is no essential conservatism that underlies the Republican Party's policies. There isn't an essential progressivism that underlies the Democratic Party's policies. This is the myth of left and right. And shedding that myth and just realizing that, hey, it's tribe, not philosophy, would help us keep them at arm's length. There's a lot of really good psychological studies that show this to be the case. Why do you think that, uh, given the fact that... Uh uh, generally, we have overwhelming support and affection for this country, but it does seem that at the extreme left and that the extreme right, uh, there is a much more negative view of the United States and our history. The, uh, the left uh, emphasizes our history and wants to radically change it in a left-wing direction and the right uh, looks more at the present and wants to change it in a radically right-wing direction and it's really people more in the middle who seem to appreciate the United States with all of our contradictions and all of our flaws, no? So, Michael, I think we would just modify the way you frame that question a little bit, which is to say that the people who are most vehemently attached to their political tribe tend to hate America because they love their tribe more than they love their country. So we well, kind of reject the... I just, I just want that to sink in for people. For us. It's <laughs> such a powerful point. Go ahead. Yeah, because we, we would say that, you know, the typical left-right framing actually isn't useful because think about our politics today. Most people, if you ask them, would say, well, you know, Bernie Sanders and his supporters are on the extreme left and Donald Trump and his ex supporters are on the extreme right. And so they have the opposite on everything. Well, if you actually look at their issue positions, there's a lot of overlap. I mean, had Trump, in a way, wanted to and did increase the size and scope of government. He increased government spending. He increased government deficits. He increased government control on trade policy. Right? He wanted a, more, a less interventionist foreign policy. There was actually a lot of overlap. But the supporters of each of those groups are so vehemently and um, irrationally attached to those political groups that they're willing to, um, to trash on the country that should 
be bringing us together. I mean, you, you've talked about the CPAC conference that's going on in Maryland right now. I and mean, a lot of the things that are being said at that conference, we would not recognize as conservatism 20 years ago. Why is that? Because the very meaning of conservatism has changed drastically since the days of Ronald Reagan. And the same can be said of liberalism. These are not coherent and enduring philosophical belief systems. They are social groups whose values are constantly evolving as the political parties evolve with them. So we wouldn't say actually that there's people, to say someone's on the extreme left or extreme right just simply says that they're extremely committed to the tribe, no matter what the tribe does. And we can see that with, for example, you've talked about um, people who identify as conservative. A lot of these people 20 years ago or 30 years ago during the Clinton administration said that character is really important in elected officials. And people would run surveys and ask them, how important do you think this is? And it used to be that conservatives, much more than liberals, believed that character mattered. Now, 30 years later, you, you survey the same data, and people who identify as conservative as liberal have completely flipped on this position. Well, is, it, is that because, um, well, why is that? Well, that's because of tribalism. They've simply adapted to go along with what their tribe is doing. Okay, what, what needs to be done? If, if you were, and we have only a few moments left, what would be the best possible outcome uh, that you, you see could be there for the election of 2024, very briefly? Is to go granular. Instead of talking about left and right, as if there's only one issue, start talking about many issues. Talk about each issue individually instead of pretending that they all go together on a spectrum. Uh, look, what a good and solid piece of advice. And there's so many eye-opening bits of history and analysis and statistics in the fantastic new book by the Lewis brothers, Hiram Lewis and Verlin Lewis. Doctors Lewis, uh, congratulations on the myth of left and right. We've uh, posted it at our website at michaelmedved.com. We'll be right back. Entertain your brain every day on the Michael Medved Show. Data show that the U.S. murder clearance rate, which reflects the proportion of total homicides solved by police, dropped to the lowest point ever in all of American history. Why would that be? We will get to that in a moment. Let me go first to Scott, who's calling in from Port Orchard, Washington. Scott, you're on the Medved Show. Scott, you're on. Oh, thank you. Yes, I just had a question. Um, what, what about the uh, definition of conservatism versus progressivism that was expounded by Leo Strauss? Are you guys familiar with that? Well, first of all, the uh, professors uh, Lewis are no longer with us, but I'm, I'm very familiar with it. I actually... I studied under a prime student of Leo Strauss when I was in college, a guy named Carl Deutsch, uh, who was his, uh, one of his protégés. But uh, what uh, definition are you referring to by Dr. Strauss? 
Well, according to Dr. Strauss, uh, progressivism is driven by the prevalent values, which are egalitarianism and permissiveness. So you have these two values driving towards a, you know, utopia, I guess, kind of a Hegelian utopia or something like that. Okay, so you have, uh, you're saying on the liberal side, on the left side, the progressive side, you have uh, a permissiveness and uh, egalitarian ideas. The problem is that egalitarian ideas uh, really counteract permissiveness often, right? Because if you want to enforce an egalitarian order, then uh, if people are making too much money, uh, you take it away from them. And that's not permissive, is it? No, it isn't. But uh, I'm just telling you what okay, Strauss's and definition so, and was, so, which and I, so, I totally so agree with. And so he's saying you have permissive egalitarianism driving the culture, and the conservatives are afraid that it will result in the final tyranny. And we're kind of seeing a lot of this now, I think, uh, where we don't know very basic things. I don't want to get into controversial subjects or anything like that. Why not? That's what we do. That's, uh, that's why talk radio exists. So what's the controversial subject that you think is bringing us to the final, um, the, the end of days, basically? No, I'm not saying the end of days. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be like that. You get, you're going to get some kind of a plateau, a socialistic kind of capitalistic plateau. But, uh, but, but think about it. Like the transgender, whole, the whole thing about transgenderism. Um, let me ask you a question. How horrible is it for children uh, uh, if, if, if you confuse them even, even more than you need to be confused? Oh, I think it's horrible. Uh, I think it's horrible indeed. And I think what's particularly horrible is that uh, uh, people are in many states, there's already the situation where you can't uh, buy an insurance policy without basically paying extra money for that insurance policy because you're paying for all of the insurance for gender confirmation surgery and uh, other treatments that you may not support or believe in that are highly controversial. But uh, uh, I'm not I'm not sure what your point was when you said we'd get into controversial subjects. The fact that there is controversy and there's lively controversy around just about everything in America right now, the, uh, that's not an indication that we are near some colossal upheaval or overturning of uh, the ordered liberty, which has been the great gift of this country to its people. For years and years and years, uh, appreciate uh, appreciate your your call and your perspective, Scott. Thank you. Um, the uh, uh, John wrote in uh, an email. He says, "I disagree completely with the guy saying the change about character matters being tribe related." It seems more like a matter of having learned a lesson from the fact that the Clinton presidency proved it actually doesn't matter. But let me explain, John, what he was talking about, because he does that in the book, and it's a very big focus of the book, is that Republicans use the slogan, character counts, and they went after Bill Clinton because his record as, um, 
and going back to service as governor of Arkansas was very complicated. I mean, the whole Paula Jones story for which uh, Clinton paid $800,000 in damages, for goodness sake, was shocking. And the Democratic response was, that has nothing to do with the presidency. Look at my stock portfolio. Look at how the economy is booming. Look at what a clever guy Clinton is and what a astute president. And at that time, the Republicans said, no, 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 character's number one. With Trump, when it comes to yeah, paying hush money to porn stars, imagine if Clinton had done that, what the Republican reaction would be. And now it's Republicans, by and large, who are saying, look, this doesn't matter. These are personal matters. It's, it doesn't really impact his leadership skills. Look at how wonderful Trump was as our president. So none of these, these issues play, play any, any role. And uh, you said, um, then this came in from Christian. And Christian writes, has the rise of social media played a major factor in the tribalism that has created this great sense of division in our country? Absolutely. And boy, they have a whole chapter devoted to it in their book. Uh, if so, and as it seems tied to so many other problems, do you think we would ever get to the point of considering banning social media? Uh, no, well, it's a First Amendment problem. You can't do that. Uh, particularly if we find strong evidence that we were much happier and more united before it. Look, there were some people who talked about banning television. As a matter of fact, in, in Britain, where most television is was traditionally under the government, they limited the amount of time that they would broadcast. They didn't have broadcast late at night or that early in the morning. They didn't have breakfast TV because they were afraid people would watch too much TV. That didn't last. And uh, the, the, I think that our general sense in this country has to be you counteract the influence of social media uh, by, first of all, installing standards in your own home, which I think is very important for kids, but then also trying to counteract it and taking some of the social media that can actually work for good. And um, then this uh, came in from... Tom, I believe, and uh, Tom writes, 25 plus years ago, you were the first conservative talk show host I've heard. I was astounded. You didn't tell me what to think. You told me what I've already thought, but I didn't realize that at the time. Example, I asked myself when I was 10, why am I getting a trophy for doing nothing? Many more. I fly heavy jets all over the planet. When people ask me, what's your favorite country? Too many are surprised by my answer, this one. Thank you from a very proud American. Well, thank you. That is a terrific sentiment. And actually, we'll, <laughs> I'll not only pass this on to my wife, thank you, but uh, save it. Uh, uh, appreciate that. Now it's time for Medved's Entertainment Minute. Rising star Taryn Edgerton, who played Elton John in Rocket Man, now portrays another real-life character, a video game entrepreneur, who becomes obsessed with securing the worldwide rights to a bewitching new game in 1989. It's called Tetris, now streaming on Apple TV+. It's poetry, art and math, all working in magical synchronicity. It's Tetris. I don't get it. The Soviet Union had worldwide rights. I'm gonna go to Moscow. 
And most of the movie is set in Moscow at the very verge of the collapse of the Soviet Union with Mikhail Gorbachev as a significant character. Some of the business-oriented deals and double-crosses may be hard to follow, but Edgerton portrays such an obsessed and audacious protagonist that you stick with him through all the international twists and turns. Rated R for some scenes of fairly intense violence, but three stars for Tetris, almost as captivating as the game itself. definition will ever do for television this is the michael medved show sometimes there are natural phenomena that uh, confuse people and that seems to be the case with the mysterious white dust which is getting publicity now all over, all around the world frankly uh, we will get to that in a moment but something that shouldn't confuse people because it's perfectly natural in fact it's made from all natural ingredients and it really does work is balance seven. If you're feeling tired and old and worn out, that could be your immune system telling you your body has too much acid. Is your stomach upset? Balance seven can change that by diluting the acid buildup in your body. It also helps to reduce heartburn and uh, it is made with all natural ingredients. You can check it out. Go to michaelmedved.com, click on the banner for balance seven. Use the code MEDVED and you get $15 off your order, free shipping, plus a free bottle of My Smooth Skin and a money-back guarantee. In three, day times, in three days' time, you'll feel the difference. Uh, go to our website, michaelmedved.com, click on the banner or call 800-793. It's toll-free, of course, 800-793-9039. Okay, they're reporting in the Daily Mail that mysterious white dust that fell from the sky in Maryland and West Virginia is identified as wait for it pollen this is after sparking conspiracy theories among worried locals a mysterious white dust that fell from the sky overnight in Maryland and West Virginia uh, has social users reported seeing the substance in the air and on vehicles in the two states on February 23rd. And they offer a bunch of pictures where it does look like, because it's, it's not snow, it doesn't melt, and, uh, and it's splotchy, it's weird. My friend in Maryland said uh, one local saw a small plane dropping white dust this morning. Something weird is going on, uh, one person posted. The, uh, in response to posts commenting on this, one TikToker made a video asking if the white dust could be a chemical attack. Uh, it is not a chemical attack. Uh, this has already been fairly well established, but the Virginia Department of Environmental Protection has since identified the substance as pollen with trace amounts of mineral matter. Mysterious white dust sparks some wild conspiracy theories. Social media 
Users reported seeing the substance in the air and on vehicles in Maryland and West Virginia on February 23rd. And it's continued since then. The uh, agency, the uh, West Virginia Department of Environmental Protection, began investigating after residents reported seeing the substance across multiple counties late Thursday night. Social media users noted uh, that the powder in the air and on cars appeared Friday in Northern Virginia, in West Virginia, and in Maryland. The reports have sparked an investigation by the West Virginia Department of Environmental Protection. The department will work with state and local agencies to collect and analyze samples to determine what the pollen is exactly. The uh, Maryland Department of the Environment said the powder probably came from New Mexico and Texas. What? Yeah. They said um, that uh, spokesman for the department, Terry Fletcher, said there's no reason to believe that the substance is linked to the Ohio train derailment, despite many theories pointing to this. He said that the northern panhandles has not experienced any air quality issues since the train accident on February 3rd. Uh, the uh, cargo train holding hazardous materials such as vinyl chloride derailed in East Palestine, Ohio. Environmental officials continue to state that air quality levels in the area are normal, but some residents have complained about health issues they believe could be linked to the crash, such as rashes, headaches, and sore throats. Well, let us hope not. Uh, meanwhile... There was a, a meeting in a hallway, uh, and it was a meeting between the Secretary of State of the United States, uh, Antony Blinken, and his Russian counterpart, the foreign minister of uh, the Russian Federation, whose name is Sergei Lavrov. And they were gathered together for the uh, G20 meeting in New Delhi. And uh, actually, it was Blinken who asked for the right to speak to Lavrov, and they sort of gathered in the hallway and chatted. It never came to blows, no problem like that. But uh, in a speech to the Human Rights Council, uh, Blinken accused Moscow of uh, repressing domestic critics, and he called for a UN investigation. Uh, listen, this is clip one. The government's systematic muzzling of independent voices in Russian civil society makes the work of the special rapporteur on human rights in the country even more important. Governments that commit atrocities abroad are also likely to violate the rights of people at home. And that's exactly what Russia is doing. The Russian government now holds more than 500 political prisoners. In January, it shuttered the Moscow Helsinki Group, one of the last human rights organizations still allowed to operate in the country. The government's systematic muzzling of independent voices in Russian civil society makes the work of the special rapporteur on human rights in the country even more important. This council has played a crucial role in shining a spotlight on Moscow's horrific and ongoing abuses, including through the creation of the Independent International Commission of Inquiry on Ukraine. The COI's first report in October concluded that Russia has committed war crimes and violations of international humanitarian law. As long as Russia continues to wage its war, the COI should continue to document such abuses, providing an impartial record of what's occurring, and a foundation for national and international efforts to hold perpetrators accountable. And uh, look, this is important. 
And uh, there is actually coverage today about the massive tank battle that has already begun in part of the battlefields of Ukraine. And uh, at least according to the New York Times report, going very badly for the Russians. And this is before Ukraine has even gotten the new equipment that is being provided with the American and German-made tanks, which are much more up-to-date and apparently much better than the material from the Cold War era that the uh, Russians are placing on the battlefield. Uh, there was this then, and, and this is about student debt. And when you talk about the need to go granular and to look at issues more specifically and not try to generalize, Sheila Jackson Lee, the gentlelady from Houston, a longtime Democratic ultra-liberal congresswoman from Houston, actually spoke about Ukrainian children being taken hostage by Russians, which is a real factor. They take these children, assume they're going to raise them into uh, loyal Russians with no uh, trace of Ukrainian identity at all. And somehow she tries to connect that with canceling the student loan debt. See if you can figure it out. It's clip 14. I refuse to accept that this great nation who stands alongside of the Ukrainian people fighting for democracy around the world so that the children of Ukraine stolen by Russians can come back to their nation and stand equal under the sun. Then I refuse to accept that each and every one of you who are here, families who cannot come to this place today, mothers and fathers who are getting up with a heavy load on their back, taking children to school, trying to make ends meet because they went and accepted the challenge of an American dream and now are under the burden of usurious rates that are slapping them to the ground. I don't want to be slapped anymore. Okay, uh, Sheila Jackson Lee went to Harvard Law School and, uh, and I assume she probably got some, uh, like m many students do, uh, some student loan help. And the idea that there are usurious rates that are being charged by the federal government, uh, do you think that government loan rates are higher than what uh, people would get in loans from private companies or private banks? Of course they're not. They are advantaged. The government has always been, has always lost money on making loans available. Speaking to someone who I don't think have benefited from student loans, there's a group of Nazi bombers in California who were just arrested by the FBI. It's an unbelievable story, and I'm shocked that we only now are hearing about it. Five bombings near Fresno. We will get to that and much more in this greatest nation on God's green earth.